I remember suffering in junior high, in eighth grade, as a, an eighth grader with pimply skin and baggy jeans and puka shells. Uh, every day after lunch, I would say goodbye to my friends, and I would drag my ridiculously big skate shoes with a, a face full of shame into my fifth period class. It was a class that was set up especially for those of us who struggled with math. Like we were just terrible at math. When it came to long division or, or PEMDAS or linear equations, we, ju- we just couldn't get it. And so we were subjected as eighth graders to harsh dungeon-like conditions, a class with seventh graders. And now that may not seem like a big deal to us today, but as an eighth grader to share a classroom with seventh graders was just the most uh, shameful thing you could probably do. But uh, then it came to high school. When I was a junior in high school, I was thrown into an Algebra two class with some seniors. And it wasn't that all of a sudden I got good at math. It was just that I felt good about not being maybe as bad at math as they were at that particular point. I mean, these things are a big deal when you're in high school and junior high. But this particular Algebra two class was also a fifth period class right after lunch. I would have to walk all the way across the campus to an air-conditioned portable building. The class was taught by an old, skinny, silver-haired man. Uh, he would always wear pattern ties and these big 360-degree glasses. His name was Mr. Tally. And I mean, he had, he had taught at Adolfo Camrio High School since like the beginning of time. My mom took a class from Mr. Tally. And I mean, like she's not old or anything. I'm not trying to say that, but he's been there forever. But two important things about Mr. Tally that everyone knew. Number one, he was very, very nice. And number two, he was very, very Mormon. And now every day we would walk into Mr. Tally's class after lunch and we would go and sit down at our seats and every single day he would walk through the, cra- the classroom and meet us at our desk where we would shake his hand and then he would ask for the quote of the day. And at which point we would regurgitate some sort of uh, uh, citation or some quotation of marginal insight, like a penny saved is a penny earned, or sometimes you get the bear and sometimes the bear gets you. Well, all the potheads in class, they would, they would cite something from like Bob Marley or Sublime, like no woman, no cry, or, or love is what I got. Well, uh, every single time someone would share a quote, no matter how good or how bad the quote was, Mr. Tally would always make it so positive and so meaningful. And, you know, this after a while kind of gets on your nerves. It got on the nerves of one of my friends uh, who was a senior in the class. His name is John. And John one day said, I- I'm sick of this. I want to I snap. Mr. Tally, I want to snap this Mormon niceness. I want to just push his buttons. And so he came up with a quote on his own. He thought that this quote would just cause Mr. Tally to just blow. And so uh, we walk into the class, we sit down in our seat, and Mr. Tally finally comes to John, shakes his hand, and John says, Mr. Tally, the quote of the day is, to forgive is to suffer. To forgive as to suffer. And Mr. Tally looked at him through those big 360-degree glasses. He squinted and, and cocked his head up, and, and he thought for a moment, 
He said, you know what, John? You're right. To forgive sometimes is to suffer. How suffering in certain ways, it isn't always a bad thing. Our teenage efforts at trying to get this old Mormon man to snap were thwarted. But, but for some reason, his perspective about suffering has stuck with me throughout the years. Perhaps his, his experience as a high school math teacher had him well acquainted with suffering. Maybe it was being Mormon or maybe it was just being human. But today, as we continue with 1 Peter and our refined sermon series, we're going to encounter an interesting perspective about suffering, how suffering in certain ways isn't always bad. It's not something that should surprise us, and in a strange way, it can even make us glad as we become unashamed partners with Jesus. Dear friends, 1 Peter 4.12 says, don't be Surprise. Like, don't be astonished. Don't be taken aback at the fiery trials you are going through as if something strange were happening to you. So like when, when life gets rough, don't jump to the conclusion that, that God isn't on the job. Sometimes suffering just goes with the territory. Like the, the fiery trials are a part of following Jesus because following Jesus means the countercultural transformation of the very nature and way of living. As Kim was talking about on Tuesday at our, our staff meeting, are we simply swept up in the culture and in the ways of the world or are we shaped by God's word and by his spirit? You know, if we are, are truly shaped by God's word and by his spirit, of course there's going to be resistance from culture. But maybe this resistance that we might experience, maybe what we're up against, maybe even suffering fiery trials can actually refine us in uh, some way to expand our faith or maybe to grow us as individuals. Maybe suffering in certain ways isn't always bad. Moore Park man charged with murder. There was a, a picture there to the lower left of those 28 letters of a headline, a picture of a man with a, a dark, wispy beard that matched the dark brown of his eyes, his eyes offset like a, that of a trout. He wore a carrot-colored undershirt beneath a, a navy blue smock. And the look he peered into the camera could paint a thousand words. It was a, a face I, I hadn't seen since college. And the name in the article was, was kind of strange because the last name looked familiar, but the first name was different than the name I knew the face by. And so I immediately just looked him up on Facebook under the name I knew him as. And I remember a couple of years ago coming across his Facebook page or, or something, getting some message from him. And it looked like, uh, looked like his life had kind of gone off the rails. 
But this time, just, just last Thursday, when this article came out and I saw this picture of a, a guy that I, it looks like someone I went to college with, uh, I looked him up and the first image that loaded on his Facebook page was that of a cross with a, a cloth draped uh, across it. I thought, wow, maybe, maybe he's you know, changed his life, he's come to Jesus, whatever. And I, I scroll down the page and I see all of these, these shared posts from a church that apparently he was, was going to. And he would write comments after every post that he shared. It would say like, believe in the Lord or uh, the Lord reigns forever and ever. But then it wasn't till I, I realized that the name of the young woman that it said in a relationship with on Facebook, it matched the name in the article, Moore Park Man Charged with Murder. The article went on to recount blunt force trauma, unresponsive, succumb to her injuries, next paragraph, arrested, not the first time, other domestic violence-related charges. On her Facebook page, everything looked rosy. Everything just looked dreamy. Love this man, she wrote, and all that he does for me. Hashtag soulmates. And maybe so. But the posts from friends flooded in after the fateful events that occurred in that uh, Moorpark hotel room. Friends saying, he had his demons. His drinking is what worried me. I know she was afraid to leave him, but he beat on her all the time. She reached out to me a year ago. We failed her. What suffering that is. Suffering in certain ways isn't always bad. Like, really? It certainly is here. What's the point of this? What's, what's the reason of this suffering to expand faith or to grow an, an individual? What's the point? I know nice people of faith who say what nice people of faith always say when people suffer. It was God's will or everything happens for a reason or God just wanted to take her home. I know what these nice people of faith mean when they say these things, but I got to tell you that these answers, they don't work for me. I can't find in them what I'm looking for. The suffering that this woman suffered seems like a suffering without reason. I mean, I don't think that this tragedy is some God-ordained test or a trial to expand faith. I don't think that suffering through something like molestation or a cheating spouse or an opioid-addicted brother, a cancer diagnosis or, or suicidal, a suicidal thought pattern is God's perfect plan and design. I don't think a, a 36-year-old mother of two murdered in a Park hotel room by a college classmate of mine is God's test or trial to grow an individual. I don't think that God is some sort of scientist with big 360-degree glasses working in a lab, conducting experiments on us rats in cages. I don't think the fiery trials are God-ordained tests. I think they're simply the experience of living for Jesus in an abrasive culture, in a sin-saturated society. But, you know, if, if you prefer the God-testing language, 
Maybe understanding how God allows can be of use to you. But I believe that God is good, that God is slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love, because that's what it says exactly in Exodus, in Numbers, Nehemiah. It says it in Psalms and Joel and Jonah. I think the fiery trials just go with the territory of being human. It goes with the territory of following Jesus. It's it's not that God created the pile of, but in some way God can create something good out of it. Something refining to expand our faith or grow us as individuals. He's the God, after all, who, who makes old things new and who brings dead things to life. He's the God who causes us to wonder what can emerge from this suffering. Maybe suffering in certain ways isn't always bad. It still sounds crazy, but here in our text, Peter speaks of persecutions in the name of Jesus, ranging from verbal abuse to to physical beatings. These are fiery trials, he says, that, that actually shouldn't surprise us as if something strange were happening to us. But instead, verse 13 says, be very glad for these trials make you partners with Christ in his suffering so that you will have the wonderful joy of seeing his glory when it is revealed to all the world. So suffering has us in the very thick of what Jesus himself experienced. And as partners with Jesus, We are never, we're never left alone. It's actually an occasion, as it says, for wonderful joy. Eh, The Greek actually says karete agaliomenoi, which means something like much rejoicing jumpingly. So we can be very glad in fiery trials because we are never left alone. Partners with Jesus who can engage in much rejoicing jumpingly because his glory will be revealed to all the world. Like all the wrongs will be righted. All the injustices will be made just. All the suffering will actually be made worthwhile. Well, the oven was set at 350 degrees Fahrenheit. The the garlic had sauteed the onions shone soft and luminous. The olive oil and sun-dried tomatoes released an intoxicating aroma throughout the kitchen. The herbs and spices soaked into the lentils. It all fused together perfectly and stuffed neatly into bright, crisp bell peppers a vegan vegetarian masterpiece. And it was all going to be ready as soon as she got home. As soon as she walked in through the door, she was maybe uh, 12 weeks pregnant at the time. You know, the the time when everything sounds so delicious and, and you can keep everything, everything down. Well, as she walked in through the door by the look on her face, the intoxicating aroma hit her more like a, a sewage plant. I think her, her direct quote was, OMG, I can't even look at it. Apparently the bell peppers look stuffed with cat food or worse. 
So the, the vegan vegetarian masterpiece became a dinner for one. You know, suffering through pregnancy is rough. I, I mean, I don't think she'll ever understand how rough it is for me. I mean, I put up with all of this to rub her swollen feet, having to hear how nauseous she is all the time. It just makes me sick. I mean, having to make all these late night runs to Rite Aid to get specifically orange flavored Gatorade because she saw a commercial of it on TV. And I mean, yeah, yeah, she does her part too, you know, but in the end, there's this beautiful creature who never sleeps and needs a diaper change like every 10 minutes. And clearly I'm being like sarcastic, but it all goes to show that gladness is possible in the middle of suffering because of what awaits. It causes us to question, like maybe suffering in certain ways isn't always, isn't always bad. Gladness is possible, whatever it means, late nights or all the OMG, I can't even look at it. So, or even insults or hardships of being a Jesus follower. For as it says, for these trials make you partners with Christ in his suffering so that you will have much rejoicing jumpingly, the wonderful joy of seeing his glory when it is revealed to all the world. Suffering has us in the very thick of what Jesus himself experienced. And as partners with Jesus, we are never left alone. That that while we may groan now, the hope of what awaits, it encourages us to hang on. Even, verse 14 says, if you are insulted because you bear the name of Christ, you will be blessed. For the glorious spirit of God rests upon you. It sounds crazy, right? Like being blessed if you are insulted for Jesus. I didn't really understand what this meant until maybe a few months ago. A friend of mine wasn't being so uh, friendly. Swear words and saliva flying off his lips. And I stood there just drenched in his rage and his frustration. He gave me an F for leadership an insulting F for the way I lead bearing the name of Christ. And I don't know what it was. Well, I I, I guess I I do. But amidst all the profanity, amidst all the the cutting down and, and labeling me a failure, I had the hardest time trying not to crack a smile. Inside, I have no idea what was going on. I didn't feel hurt in any way, even though his words were pointed, even though they were sharp and and harsh. But I, I just felt, I guess, in a strange way, blessed, like with this weird sense of God's spirit resting on me. I knew this friend who wasn't being so friendly was just hurt, and that's why he was lashing out in this way. I, I could see through it, and I could learn to love him regardless. But looking back, Maybe that was a flicker of a fiery trial. But I felt blessed, even in insult, even in uh, momentary suffering. So, So maybe suffering in certain ways isn't always bad, especially if, as it says, you will be blessed. 
And now when it comes to being blessed, I think we often just get it all wrong. I think we over-spiritualize this idea of being blessed. Like it's some magical, intangible aura or, or something. But no, blessing is the specific transfer of security, health, peace, happiness, prosperity. It's, it's a concrete reality from God that we can experience even in insult and even in suffering. If you suffer, however, verse 15 says, it must not be for murder, stealing, making trouble, or prying into other people's affairs. I mean, that's just like stupid. That's just getting getting paid back for what you've done wrong here. Definitely it's shameful, especially when you get caught, but it is no shame to suffer for being a Christian. And then more than that, Praise God for the privilege of being called by his name. And what a name it is to be called a Christian. You know how many times the word Christian appears in the Bible? It's three times. Twice in the book of Acts and once here in 1 Peter. Christianos is the Greek and it means something like little Christ's. It was actually a put down, a term of mockery uh, that is uh, intended for ridicule, but it stuck. As more and more people began to suffer for their faith, they began to take it as a title of honor. But today, based on people's you know, terrible experiences and, and us sometimes being sucky examples as followers of Jesus, the term Christian gets almost automatically rejected or labeled with faulty assumptions. Like, oh, you must vote in a certain way, huh? Or, or oh, you must hate these types of people. Or, oh, you must be anti this. Or, oh, you must be anti that. <laughs> the world knows so well what Christians are against. If only the world knew who we stand for. Maybe it's time we return to being little images of Christ, bearing his name, belonging to God's household. For the time has come, verse 17, for judgment, and it must begin with God's household. And if judgment begins with us, what terrible, what terrible fate awaits those who have never obeyed God's good news? And also, if the righteous are barely saved, what will happen to godless sinners? Like, if it's hard to imagine how God forgives and redeems those who believe in Jesus, what happens to those who deliberately disobey God? Well, they'll get what they deserve. They'll get essentially what they want, what they've always lived for in deliberate disobedience of God. They'll get a God-free existence eternal separation from God. But we want that for no one, even those who cause us suffering. Verse 19 says, So if you are suffering in a manner that pleases God, keep on doing what is right and trust your lives to the God who created you, for he will never fail you. In other words, if you find that life is difficult because you're doing what God said, take it in stride. Trust him. He knows what he's doing, and he'll keep on doing it. When I was a 
in junior high, it was a, a few years before I was subjected to the dungeon-like conditions of being an eighth grader in a seventh grade class. When I was younger in junior high, a bunch of my, my friends and I, we would go over to my buddy Steve-O's house for hands down the coolest event known to, known to junior hires circa 1999, WrestleMania and Royal Rumble. I mean, I'm talking about professional wrestling, starring the the greatest human beings on earth. Stone Cold, Steve Austin, The Rock, Ric Flair, Bam Bam, Bigelow, Diamond Dallas Page. I could go on and on, but there was a particular group of wrestlers who, who were my favorite. They made up a team. They were Sting and Hulk Hogan and, of course, Buff Bagwell. They made up this team called NWO, New World Order. I, I was crazy about NWO. I loved these guys. They were, they were incredible. Well, one day, my mom and I are at Christian Family Supplies when I'm in junior high there on uh, Ventura Boulevard in Camarillo, and uh, I am waiting there, and I see hanging on a rack an NWO shirt. I'm like, no way. Well, it wasn't technically an NWO shirt, because I don't know if you're around during the, the late 90s, early 2000s, but it was the cool thing for Christians during that time to be edgy you know, to be just cutting edge. And so this is what they would do. Christians in the late 90s, early 2000s, they would take a, a, a t-shirt and put on it a, a design that looked similar to the actual design. So they would take a, a company like Abercrombie and & Fitch and they would uh, totally copyright infringement, just change the logo. Instead of saying Abercrombie & Fitch, it would say a breadcrumb and fish. I mean, edgy. I know. They would do this all the time. Instead of Subway, it was his way. Instead of Gatorade, it was Savior. Hey, even instead of Marlboro Light, Messiah Light. I mean, super edgy, I know, but that's exactly what they did at the Christian Family Supplies. At least their, the merchandise said it. Instead of NWO, it was NWC. Instead of new world order, it was nothing without Christ. With the tagline, John 3.16. And I saw this shirt and I'm like, mama, mama, we have to get this. Please, please, please. I'm begging her to get me this shirt because, you know, it's Christian and it's cool. At least I thought so. I wear it to school on Monday, and man, junior hires can be so mean. You know, I, I, the first comment I, I hear is like, oh, NWC, it's NWO, loser. Uh, nothing without Christ, lame. Yeah, the junior hires can just be so mean. And so what I did was I took masking tape, and I, I made the C into an O. And I took a, a long strip and I covered the nothing without Christ and the tagline, John 3.16. You know, I know some of you today are, are suffering in unimaginable ways, whether for your faith or just in general. I know that some of you have story after story after story of how you've suffered without relief, but I want to encourage you 
in your suffering, don't cover up what I covered up. Because covering up the reality that you and I are nothing without Christ is covering up the only thing that makes the suffering worth it. Instead, follow Jesus. Keep on doing what is right. Instead, trust your lives to the God who created you, for he will never fail you. When the 28-letter headline brings you to your knees, or when the morning sickness has you swaying at sea, when your friends aren't being so friendly, or, or when to forgive is to suffer, when you're put down for being a, a little Christ, or when a pile of hits the fan. Keep on doing what is right and trust your lives to the God who created you, for he will never fail you. For in and out of every fiery trial, you and I are nothing without Christ. But with him, we are everything. For God in all his majesty and glory and honor, in all his all-knowing goodness and power, for God so loved the world, the cosmos, with an agape, says the Greek, a self-sacrificing type of, of love that he gave his one and only son, that whoever believes in him by putting faith in him, by committing oneself wholly and trustfully in him, they shall not perish but have eternal, whole, and everlasting life and life to the full. Would you pray with me? Jesus, I just thank you that with you we are everything. Even in the middle of suffering, I pray that you would help us to see the gold that is there, to see the, the future that awaits, that, that even in unjust suffering that just happens because we're a part of this world, I pray your presence would just be there with us, Lord. Help us to be aware of it because we know, Lord, that we are never alone, that you never leave us. You're with us every step, in every moment, in every heartbreak, Lord, you are there. So I pray for those who need that today. They want to experience you for the first time. Say, Jesus, come into my life. Do your work. I am nothing without you. I want you in my heart. I believe you died on the cross. I believe you rose from the grave. So come into my life. I want you to be king of my life. I want to follow you. I want to pursue you. I want your Holy Spirit to rest on me and to lead me and guide me. So Lord, help us to be the people who are refined by doing good, by loving you and serving you. For you have created us, you have great plans for us, and Lord, you are always going to be victorious. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.